you have a Bible this morning, I want to invite you to go ahead and turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 7. And then if you don't have a Bible, I want to invite you to take one of the Bibles we've provided for you. They're at the, the center of each aisle. Somebody down near the center would be happy to pass one over to you. And we'd love for you to take it and be our gift to you. This morning we're going to be in 2 Corinthians chapter 7 where Paul talks about something he calls godly grief. Godly grief. Every single one of us in this room right now has things about ourselves that we don't like. Maybe it's the size of your nose, the shape of your ears, some sort of body image problem. Maybe it's your resume isn't what you wish it was. Maybe it's something more serious like your relationship track record. All of us have things about ourselves we don't like. Now, in times past, most places in the world, people would have thought of that the great culprit, the great threat to us having peaceful relationships and just societies is that some of us might have too high a view of ourselves. Pride was the great threat to us. Too high self-esteem. In our culture, in our time and place, we flipped that. Now we tend to think that us having too low self-esteem is the source of our problems, the source of breakdown in our relationships, the source of violence and bad behavior. Now, it's, not, it's, it's clear that, that low self-esteem can be a problem, a serious problem. Sometimes low self-esteem can be rooted in you know, bad messages that you're getting from the culture about what your body should look like, messages you need to not believe, you need to reject as lies. Sometimes it can be rooted in some sort of abusive posture that other people have had towards you, whether your parents or your friends or your, your boss. Sometimes it can be rooted in past mistakes that you think falsely you can't ever overcome. Sometimes it can come from the your inability to believe that you're a person made in God's image with his dignity as your possession, as his gift to you, with something to offer, with the ability to create and invest in other people. Sometimes low self-esteem is a tremendous problem that needs to be attacked head on. But I think, especially right now in our culture in general, our well-meaning attack on low self-esteem has come at a very high cost to us. Grief over yourself, over something true about you, over something you've done or something you've said or something you've become, something true about yourself that makes you sad, this sort of grief actually is a crucial part of the path to life, according to Paul. This sort of grief about yourself is the only way to salvation, he says in our passage this morning. In other words, there's a kind of grief about ourselves that's good for us. So what is this good, godly grief? Why do we need it so badly? And how do we get it? Those are the three questions I want to answer this morning. What is godly grief, the good kind? How do we distinguish it from the bad kind? Why do we need godly grief, like Paul says we do? And, and how do we get it? Those are the three questions. And before I get to those questions, which are addressed right in the middle of this long passage I'm going to read here in just a sec, 
I want to set this up because this is a letter that is deeply personal. And what Paul's going to say about godly grief only makes sense if you know something about his personal dynamics of how he was relating to the people he was writing this letter to. They were friends of his. He didn't just, you know, podcast out this message to the masses, not knowing their names. He knew their names. He knew them. He had history with them. And what he says to them is directly connected to that history. It's something we've been trying to unpack together for the last several months. What I'm going to read in just a minute is most of this chapter. I'm going to read it all at once. And the first part of this chapter and the last part is Paul talking about his travel plans and his communications to these friends and how they receive these communications. We're going to spend some time on only a few of the verses right in the middle because that's where the meat of of his teaching is, is for us this morning. But I want you to understand what he says before and after. I want to set it up. Then I'm going to read it so that hopefully you'll be able to see it right away excuse me, as I read it. And then we're going to come back and zero in on just a couple of verses in the middle. So remember, this is Paul communicating to friends that he knew, confronting a very specific set of problems that they had. Paul's already told us earlier in this letter, he's told us already about another letter that he wrote before. We don't have it. We don't know exactly what he said. But it was a letter that was very hard for him to write. He wrote it to challenge his friends about their behavior toward him, about their flirtation with what he believes is a deadly and corrupted version of Christianity. It was a hard letter to write. He wrote it with tears, he tells us, because he didn't want to cause them pain. He loves these people. But he knew it had to be done. He'd sent this letter by a messenger, a man named Titus. Back in these days, it wasn't easy to send messages. You couldn't text, you couldn't iMessage, you couldn't email, you couldn't even send by post. If you wanted to get a message to somebody who lived in another part of that ancient world, you had to send it by somebody that you knew, somebody trustworthy who could carry it. And those roads were long roads. A lot of times you had to sail across dangerous seas. It wasn't easy. So it took time. If, if it even got through to begin with, it took time. So he'd sent his man Titus. And ever since then, he'd been wondering if Titus had gotten through. And he'd been wondering about how the Corinthians took it when they got this letter, if it had actually gotten to them in the first place. He'd just been wondering. So he goes to Troas. He'd mentioned this back in chapter two. That's where he broke off his sort of travel log. He's picking it back up in chapter seven. He went to this ancient city called Troas. He and Titus are supposed to meet up there. He gets there, no Titus. So his tension level is rising. His stress, his worry, it's climbing. No Titus. He can't wait any longer. He goes to Macedonia. He thinks he'll intercept Titus further up Titus's travel path. He gets to Macedonia. No Titus. All the while, he is tormented by fear about how his friends were going to respond to the hard words he wrote to them. You know what that feels like, don't you? You ever send a text knowing how horrible text is for communicating serious things? Ever send a text not gotten a response back? The longer the response goes unsent, the greater your anxiety, the fear builds, you're wondering, did they just set their phone aside for the night or are they angry at me? Imagine waiting weeks like Paul did. Then Titus arrives and he arrives with good news. They had taken this letter well. It had gotten through to them. Somehow what Paul said by God's power penetrated their hard hearts and convicted them of their sin against Paul and against God. They saw it and they changed their posture towards Paul and toward this other false teacher completely. Even Titus, 
Titus, who went as the bearer of bad news, ends up getting encouraged and refreshed by his time with them. Just like Paul, told, they, they confirmed everything Paul had told Titus about them, about the quality, their quality and their faithfulness. So Paul's happy. This chapter is positive. It's encouraging. That's what we're about to read. You'll see that. Hopefully that'll help you understand what I'm going to read and will set up the center of Paul's teaching at the very, very center of this chapter, the section on godly grief. Let me read the whole chapter now that you know what, something of the backstory. Then we're going to come back to just a few verses. Would you stand with me now in honor of God's word while I read from 2 Corinthians chapter 7? This is the word of the Lord. I'm going to begin in verse 2. Make room in your hearts for us. We have wronged no one. We have corrupted no one. We have taken advantage of no one. I do not say this to condemn you, for I said before that you're in our hearts to die together and to live together. I'm acting with great boldness towards you. I have great pride in you. I'm filled with comfort. In all our affliction, I am overflowing with joy. Why? Why is he so happy? For even when we came into Macedonia, our bodies had no rest. We were afflicted at every turn, fighting without and fear within. But God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus. And not only by his coming, but also by the comfort with which he was comforted by you. As he told us of your longing, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoice still more. For even if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it. For I see that the letter grieved you, though only for a while. As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. For see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you, but also what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. At every point, you've proved yourselves innocent in the matter. So although I wrote to you, it was not for the sake of the one who did the wrong, nor for the sake of the one who suffered the wrong, It's probably a reference to the false teacher, the one who did the wrong, and to Paul himself, the one who suffered the wrong. I didn't write for him to correct him. I didn't write for me to sort of get it off my chest. But in order that your earnestness for us might be revealed to you in the sight of God, therefore we're comforted. And besides our own comfort, we rejoice still more at the joy of Titus because his spirit had been refreshed by you all. For whatever boasts I made about, him, about you to him, I was not put to shame. But just as everything we said to you was true, so also our boasting before Titus has proved true. And his affection for you is even greater as he remembers the obedience of you all, how you received him with fear and trembling. I rejoice because I have complete confidence in you. This is God's word. You can be seated. Did you notice in the middle of the letter, in between this travel log, in between his report on how happy he was to see Titus and to hear how they responded, a couple of verses where Paul explains why he's done what he's done. Paul explains why the grief his letter caused them was good grief. 
good for them, life-giving even. Why he was glad that his letter hurt them even though he didn't want it to at one level. That's where I really want us to drill down. Verses 9 through 11. Really drill down here and ask ourselves, what is this godly grief that Paul's talking about? He talks about the difference between godly grief and worldly grief. I want to make sure that we understand what he means. Then we'll talk about why we need this grief so badly and then how we get this grief in our lives. Let's talk about this first, make sure we're clear on the terms. What is godly grief? Three times in this letter, Paul celebrates godly grief. Comes up in verse 9, comes up in verse 10, comes up again in verse 11. One time, he sets it off from worldly grief. Worldly grief, he says, leads to death. Godly grief leads to repentance and salvation, life. What is he talking about? Well, he doesn't say much. He doesn't really unpack it, does he? But I think we can understand what he means through two different key words. We pay attention to godly and worldly. And these words are freighted. These words carry a lot of weight. We know these words, something of these words from other parts of the Bible. The difference between these two griefs, I think we can trace down if we drill down on what godly grief would be and what worldly grief would be. A godly grief is a grief that comes from your orientation to God, from seeing something about Him, from seeing how your sin affects Him, from seeing how He views your sin. Worldly grief would come from, uh, would be a grief inspired by the perspective of the world, missing out, for example, on something that the world values, or seeing that you have not accomplished or been, been viewed with the kind of, uh, you know, glowing terms that you were hoping for. Godly grief oriented towards God, his perspective, how he's affected, what he thinks. Worldly grief being based around the world and its values and, and how you measure up to its standards. So two aspects of godly grief here. Concern for how God is affected by our sin, that'd be number one. And concern for how God views our sin. Our grief about ourselves is godly and therefore life-giving. When our grief about ourselves is tied to how God has been affected by our flaws and is tied to how God views our flaws. Let me, let, me, let me just really briefly say a couple of words about each one of those things. Godly grief comes from seeing how God is affected by our actions. Often when we're down on ourselves, what we're grieving is some effect on our lives, the consequences to us of something that we did or said or unable to undo. Think about missed opportunities in your life, bad choices even, failures. It could be little things. You know, I have some worldly grief over the fact that I didn't have the foresight or courage to buy a house when I could afford it in Germantown. I don't know if you guys know about the Germantown housing market. About seven years ago, Lindsay and me were looking, we're in the housing market. And there were all these houses that, that at the time it was just after the bubble had burst, it was in the recession. There were all these houses, great houses in Germantown, just north of downtown, great neighborhood, um, that were, they were practically giving them away in the terms of Nashville real estate, right? Not literally, but they were, they were affordable, even for us. But I, didn't have, I couldn't see that. You know, I couldn't see that the market had reached the bottom. I didn't have the courage to just jump in there with both feet. Now they're worth three times what they were asking seven years ago, literally. 
And I've been kicking myself about it for the last five years, since, ever since it became clear that I had missed out. Well, that's not a big thing, right? That's a form of worldly grief, though. What am I grieving? I missed an opportunity. I, I'm grieving my own limited, blinded view of things. It could be bigger things, though. Maybe you did something at work that led, your, led you to be fired. Maybe you said something to somebody that poisoned or ended your relationship with them. It's natural to feel grief over something like that. But there's a kind of grief that falls short of the godly grief that Paul's talking about. Or what you're really sad about is what's happened to your life because of the choices you made. A grief that comes from looking at yourself and how you've been affected rather than looking at God and how he's affected so godly grief, the kind that leads to life, is a genuine sorrow over your offensiveness to him, over your ingratitude to him, even though he's given you every breath that you've ever breathed, over your ingratitude for all the goodness that he's brought into your life just by putting you in a world that has beauty and purpose, full of wonderful people, beautiful sights, delicious foods, all of these gifts that God has put in our life, our sin, in our sin, we are ungrateful for them. Godly grief sees that by rejecting him, by going our own way, instead of embracing his, his goodness and authority over us, hurts him. Godly grief is grief that's tied to how God is affected by our mistakes, our flaws, our sin. Godly grief is also tied to how God views our sin. There's a kind of worldly grief that's more moved by how other people think about me than by how God thinks about me. That's another kind of grief that we experience, something embarrassing that you've said maybe. There's, there are things that I've said to people that sometimes will just hit me out of the blue, the memory of it, and it's like a gut punch. It's like, <gasps> almost takes your breath. You wish you could take that back. Just silly things, maybe, or hurtful things that you didn't mean. Or maybe somebody's tagged you in a picture that you didn't control. On Instagram, your hair's a little off. When the smile looks unnatural. The angle or the lighting is bad. Now you've got a choice to make. You know, do I show myself as vain and ask them to take it down? Or do I leave it up and just deal with the consequences? Would I rather be vain or look silly? Either way, it's tied to how other people are going to look at you though, isn't it? That's the kind of grief. Our flaws viewed by other people is what hurts us. That's worldly. It's not life-giving. It's deadly. Our pride is tweaked. We wish we could rewind time, change what people saw or what people think. Godly grief is different though, friends. Godly grief is rooted in what God thinks about how, about what we've done and how he views our sin. Leads to a genuine hatred for the sin because we see the sin like God does. We aren't looking at it for its consequences in our lives, primarily, or for what it does to our reputation in the eyes of other people. We look at it and see it for how it affects God and for how he sees it. 
That kind of grief leads us to hate sin. That's the kind of grief that David experiences in Psalm 51, one of the classic passages in the Bible where where we see a, a godly person being honest about their sin before God, confessing. David has just been guilty of murder. He's killed a man so that he could take that man's wife. He's been exposed publicly. He had good reason to grieve over the effects of that sin on his own life. It led to the death of a child. He had good reason to grieve over the effect of this sin on his reputation. Everybody saw it and we're still reading about it and talking about it today. But this is what David says. I know my transgressions. My sin is ever before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. As David saying, what I've done, it's against you. The evil I've done, I see as evil based on your sight, your perspective. That's what's broken his heart. That's what's led David in the opening words of the psalm to cry out, have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. I've got no other appeal. I can't deny these things are true about me. Don't have mercy on me because of me. Your steadfast love is the only appeal. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. I can't rewind the past. I can't get rid of what's been done. The only way my transgressions get blotted out is your mercy. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. There's a true confession. That's what godly grief looks like. It's brokenness over the effect of our sin on God. It's hatred for our sin because God hates it. That's what Paul means when he talks about godly grief, oriented towards God, not towards ourselves or, t- or towards the values of the world. So, so why do we need it? If that's what it is, I think most of what Paul says about godly grief in 2 Corinthians 7 is meant to try to help us see why we need it so badly. Why does Paul celebrate godly grief? Why does he rejoice that he's grieved them? Well, verse 9 says he rejoices over this godly grief because they were grieved into repenting. I rejoice not because you were grieved, not the grief on its own. I didn't want to hurt you. But that grief produced something in you. It produced change. You were grieved into repenting. Same thing comes out in verse 10. Godly grief, he says, produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. And then look at verse 11. Why was he celebrating godly grief? Look what it did in their lives. See what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you, he says. But also what eagerness to clear yourselves. Probably a reference to getting rid of whatever it was in their lives. We don't know exactly what they had done and what Paul confronted, but they they were motivated, had its earnestness. Get rid of that thing. Clear it out of your life. What indignation at the, the, the man who was stirring up trouble against Paul. They're now... They're now, they've got personal indignation against him for what he's done towards Paul. 
what fear, or think of fear of the Lord, respect, um, the gravity of the situation, what longing to be different than what you are, what punishment, or maybe better tra- translated, what justice. It, they were, this grief led them to want to right the wrongs of this situation. Paul had been mistreated there. People had been misled by these false teachers. They're going to set it right. Their grief led them to change lives. It transformed who they were. That's why godly grief is so good. That's why we need it. It's good grief because it brings change. Here's how one pastor put it. I thought this was a really helpful way to say it. Worldly grief immobilizes you. Godly grief mobilizes you. Worldly grief, the kind that leads to death, it immobilizes you. It freezes you. It paralyzes you. But godly grief, the kind that David had in Psalm 51, the kind that the Corinthians had when they got Paul's letter, that kind of grief actually mobilizes you. It helps you to change. Now, let me, let me unpack this a little bit. Worldly grief, Paul has said, leads to death. Worldly grief that's only about me and how people see me and how my sin has affected me, that grief makes me stuck. We know from experience how grief over yourself, like low self-esteem, can immobilize you, don't we? Surely that's why so many attack grief altogether. They try to ease that pain. Let's get rid of the pain we feel from grief. Depression has been described, for example, as anger turned inward. Anger turned inward. Anger at yourself and who you are and what you've done and what you've become. And we know that one of the classic symptoms of depression is paralysis. The feeling that you can't get up and face what that day is going to bring into your life. The feeling that you're beyond help, beyond hope. And then we've all probably struggled at some point or another with self-pity that colors everything we believe about ourselves. We've struggled to break out of the cycle of that kind of loathing because we've failed in some way or broken something that's precious to us. And anybody who's ever struggled with repeated sexual sin like pornography, you know the vicious cycle of shame and self-loathing and defeatism that comes with failing over and over and over when you tell yourself you won't. There's no power in that form of grief. It doesn't lead to change. It just leaves you stuck, defeated. Sort of grief is not good. But friends, get with me now. We have to be very careful how we treat that sort of grief. There's no question that there's a kind of grief that immobilizes you and needs to be addressed. We have to be very careful how we deal with it. Here's what I mean. No denying low self-esteem can be a serious problem. That it can spread its poison throughout all of our lives. Sometimes that's true. But we need to recognize that sometimes feeling down on ourselves is not the disease, it's the symptom. And if we just throw everything we have at getting rid of that symptom, then we, could, we risk remaining stuck with the disease. See, our, our low self-esteem sometimes is rooted in something that's true about ourselves. Something we need to acknowledge, not hide from, if we want to change. 
And if that's the case, if that's where our being down on ourselves is coming from, then if we attempt to just move on, if we attempt to coach one another up and tell each other not to feel so bad about whatever it might be, then what we're doing, what we're doing is just keeping each other stuck, keeping each other in the dark. That kind of self-acceptance isn't going to bring real change. It could just lead you to death. Earlier this week, I was talking to a buddy of mine who's a, uh, an uh, ear, nose, and throat doctor. He was telling me about this particular condition called cholesteatoma. Does that sound right? Any doctors in the house say, did I get that pronunciation? Cholesteatoma? I got, yeah, I got a couple of hands back here. That's good. Now, I'm probably about to butcher what this disease involves, but hopefully you'll get the point anyway. So uh, cholesteatoma is, is uh, a kind of ingrowth. It's benign. It's not a cancerous tumor, but a kind of ingrowth of skin inside your ear skin where skin's not supposed to be now if you leave it alone but just goes on untreated well it starts harmless enough kind of ear popping kind of negative pressure in your ear then it leads to the ear draining relentlessly then you start to lose your hearing and if you leave it long enough it can spread to your brain cause an abscess and you can die you don't want to leave cholesteatoma alone. The problem is that cholesteatoma starts out like seeming like, the symptoms seem like just a normal ear infection. So a lot of times, doctors will throw drugs at it, treating what they think is the problem, but is really just a symptom. And there can be some improvement, at least temporarily, of that symptom through these drugs that they're throwing at it. But every time you take these drugs that just attack the symptom, you're delaying addressing the real problem that could lead to your death. If you try to get rid of the symptom without the problem, addressing the real problem, you're not going to get anywhere. There's no power for change. These drugs aren't going to fix that issue. Yes, grief over self can be immobilizing. But if you just throw everything you have at getting rid of the grief, at telling yourself that you should just feel better, Well, then that sort of grief can be even more deceptively immobilizing. Godly grief, friends, godly grief is honest self-assessment. Godly grief agrees with God about ourselves. It doesn't hide from the truth and therefore it can lead to some serious change. A desire, an urgency, and a clarity about what's necessary. In Paul's words, godly grief leads to repentance. Godly grief leads to salvation without regret. And the reason is, friends, that godly grief can lead you to forgiveness. It's the only path to forgiveness. I think what Paul's getting at when he celebrates godly grief is the message of forgiveness that's at the heart of the gospel. If the effect of your sin on you or on the perspective that other people have about you because of your flaws or your mistakes, if that's all that matters to you, you're stuck. You can't change the past. You can't undo what you did. You can't make them unknow what they know about you. There's no way forward. You can try. 
You can try to claim that whatever it is isn't important, but it is. You could try to convince yourself that it wasn't that bad. You could try to excuse yourself based on something that has been done to you by others upstream of what you did. You could try to convince yourself that what others think about you doesn't matter anyway. But at best, these sorts of ways of coping with the grief that you feel about yourself, they're only going to numb the pain for a bit, for a time. They aren't a way forward. You can't get back what you lost. You can't change what people think. But when God's view of your sin is what's most important to you, when you're most grieved by an effect of your sin on him, when you're grieved by the grief caused to him, when what you crave is not some better view of yourself in the eyes of others, but God's approval of you, when that's what you're grieving over, then you're set up to experience the freedom of his forgiveness. When what you crave is the approval of other people, you can't get that back. It's not in your power. You can't change what you did and you can't change what they think. There's no way forward there. But godly grief doesn't need to rewrite history to change the story. Godly grief is honest. It says, yeah, this is who I am. I am not better than this. It stands up under the truth and all of its weight and says, still God is for me. Erica read earlier in the service from Psalm 32. It's another beautiful example of this kind of confession and the freedom that it leads to. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. Where does that come from? From changing the past, from becoming as if you weren't guilty? No, no, it comes from honesty about guilt. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. Day and night, your hand was heavy on me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. That's what it looks like to resist godly grief, to try to avoid its weight. Then the psalmist says, I acknowledge my sin to you. I I didn't cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. And you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Godly grief leads to salvation because godly grief leads to God's forgiveness. It leads us to see the beauty of Christ, the ultimate proof of God's steadfast love. Romans 5, 8 puts it this way. God demonstrates his love. You want to know that God loves you? How do you know? He demonstrates his love in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You don't have to change who you are. You don't have to change what you've done to know God's forgiveness. You just have to be honest about it. Godly grief is how you get honest. Godly grief is how you get forgiven. So how do we get it? We've seen what it is. Hopefully that's clear. We've seen why it's so important. It's the only way to lead to change in your life. 
Godly grief produces repentance. So how do we get it? That's what I want to leave you with this morning. The context here is where I'm getting this point. For this to work, for what Paul's celebrating here, for it to have worked, for them to have gotten this message and been changed by it, it took a couple of different things that I want to point you to this morning. For their lives to be changed as they have been, Paul had to be willing to cause them this grief and they had to be willing to accept it. Those two things have to happen for us to experience the godly grief that leads to repentance, that leads to salvation. Somebody's always got to be willing to cause that kind of grief in the life of someone else. And the person on the receiving end has got to be willing to receive that challenge with humility. This text gives us a sense of what God uses when he brings conviction into our lives and freedom let me say a couple of words about each one of these. The first thing, the first thing that's got to happen if we want to get godly grief is that we've got to be willing to cause grief in love. We've got to be willing to cause grief to others in love. There's a, there's a powerful point here, a, a, a very tenuous balance that we've got to strike. And I don't know where you are exactly on the continuum of comfort with confronting people with hard things about their lives but I'm going to speak to two types all right and hopefully you're going to be close to one there's a certain type that needs to notice what Paul says about himself in verse three that he's nobody's judge that he's not trying to condemn them Paul says to them that they live in his heart in other words he is fully identified with their lives he doesn't like throw bombs over some sort of wall that divides him from them he is of them and in them he is for them you are in our hearts he says in verse three to live and to die together that's why knowing that he hurt them he even regretted what he said for a time verse eight says that for a little while I actually regretted saying the things that I did I kind of wished that I hadn't said what I said in that letter because I knew it was going to hurt you he can't hurt them without being hurt himself so If you're not grieved by someone else's grief, even when you know it's good for them, you're not the person to cause that godly grief. You're not. You probably need to press pause, take a deep breath, back up a little bit before you take any action. Others, though, need to be encouraged to take up Paul's courage and be willing to cause pain to somebody that you love. Paul doesn't hold back, even though he knew it would hurt them and he knew that would hurt him. He still doesn't hold back and we shouldn't hold back either. Not if we love one another. So our instinct, if we love one another, our instinct is to help somebody feel better. If they're experiencing some sort of grief about themselves and their life, my first instinct is always to try to talk them down, right? And try to talk them out of thinking the way that they think about themselves. Sometimes that's necessary. There's a kind of worldly grief, a false grief that they need to give up and move on from. But We have to be really careful how quickly we go to talking someone down from feeling pain about themselves. We need to be really careful how quickly we go there. Sometimes it's important to do. But sometimes if we do that, we could be treating a symptom, their pain, their grief over themselves, but leaving the disease untouched. It could be that the grief they feel about themselves, maybe the grief we cause them through telling them something hard, Maybe the path to life, to an honesty that leads to forgiveness and to salvation. We don't want to get in the way. 
by telling them not to feel bad in the first place. Trying to talk somebody down from grief when it's a symptom of a true problem is not loving, friends. It's deadly. So, how do we get this godly grief? Well, we're going to have to be willing, in love, as part of a community of people who are for one another, fully identified. We're going to have to be willing to cause it sometimes, to do what Paul's done for his friends here and bring something to the surface. Or recognize that someone is down on themselves about something and actually be willing to help them identify why without first just trying to make them feel better. That's the first thing it'll take for us to get to this godly grief. Here's the second thing. This is the last thing. We gotta be willing to receive this kind of grief from each other in humility. We've gotta be willing to receive it. We can't let ourselves try to dodge what others bring to us. If you try to avoid the grief that could come from somebody saying something hard to you, you try to avoid it or numb it or deflect it, then probably what you're experiencing is not godly grief at all, but a worldly kind of grief. A sense that you need to protect an image of yourself that you don't want to be tarnished. A sense that you need to convince them to feel good about you before you can feel good about yourself. Worldly grief is what you're trying to protect. If you're, if you're trying to dodge hard things that people are bringing to you. You can't shoot the messenger, friends. Not when it comes from somebody who's in life with you and for you and loves you. <laughs> we do that, don't we? Somebody says something hard. And our first instinct to sort of come back at them with something hard about them. <laughs> you know, like a tit-for-tat trade of flaws and exposure. Like some sort of soccer team just playing for a draw. Don't try to explain away what they're seeing by talking up what they're not seeing. That's another move we make sometimes. Highlight all the things that they aren't seeing to avoid having to confront what they may see. Don't make them be perfect in how they deliver the message for you to get anything from it. Focusing on the mistakes they made in communication, the way they may have bungled it, the way they may have misspoken or maybe come off as too harsh or too broad in the strokes they're painting. Don't make them be perfect. These are ways we try to dodge the blow rather than learn from the blow. If we want to find our way to this godly grief that leads to repentance, that leads to salvation, we got to look for what we can learn from each other when someone has the courage to bring something hard to us. Not, not explain it away or dodge it. In Christ, friends, there is no reason to shrink back from what someone else may notice about us. Christ frees us up to look for what we can learn, no matter, how, no matter how deeply buried it might be in things that aren't true. Here's what I mean. In Christ, if you're in Christ, to join to Jesus, to claim him by faith and what he's done for you, what you first got to admit is that I'm past saving apart from the death of the God who made me. That's how far my sin has brought me down. Before I could be with Jesus, I got to acknowledge that. And that means there is nothing you could tell me about myself that, I don't, that I'm going to have trouble believing. 
Anything you might notice about me, any flaw, any limitation, any mistake doesn't add to the picture of my sin. If I'm in Christ, you're just giving me an example of something I already knew was there. So I'm I'm as bad as you think I am and worse. (laughs) If you're in Christ, that's, that's your posture. And if you're in Christ, not only do you have no reason to dispute something somebody might bring to you, you got no reason to be afraid of it. Christ is for me. He's for me anyway, knowing me fully, seeing my flaws even more clearly than you do. I can't be in Christ without knowing that I am desperately sinful beyond all other hope. I can't be in Christ without knowing that he is for me fully and sufficiently. That's never going to be threatened by anything you might notice. Christ gives us freedom to embrace what people bring to us, to take it for what it is and not make them pay for it, to learn together in community through godly grief to find holiness. That's the power of the gospel. That's what Paul's celebrating and that's what we're gonna pray now that God will give us the strength to practice in our community. Father, this that we've been talking about, it it is radically unnatural Nobody likes to hear hard things about themselves. No one likes to, to, to try to help others see hard things about themselves. We don't have in ourselves the security we need to be honest about our flaws and to look to you to forgiveness. So I pray, Father, by your power that you would break us down and build us back up again. Break down these shabby walls we've built around ourselves that are never going to keep out what threatens us, that will never protect us in the day of your judgment. Break them down, Father, through godly grief so that we can shelter ourselves in the rock of our redemption, the rock that was cleft for us, the place carved out so that we can hide, so that we could be secure and protected. We know that grief is the only way there, so grieve us, Father, so that you can heal us and help us to be faithful to each other, to be your instruments in this work. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.